Galatians, if you want to open up to Galatians chapter 3, that is where we'll be this morning. And I will go ahead and pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for um, the gift of just being your children, being your church, that we can come together and worship you, um, that we can praise you with one another, be an encouragement to one another, and that we have this time set aside to focus just on that, on worshiping you, on studying your word. And I pray that as we study it, that you would teach it to us, that um, through your word, you would generate fruit that glorifies you and uh, that grows us in our love for you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are in Galatians, but this is one of those great passages, and really Galatians, as you're going to see in the coming weeks, is one of those great uh, letters that draws in the entirety of Scripture. The Bible does that very often where it, it becomes evident that from cover to cover, the Bible is about God redeeming a people for himself to his glory through Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the theme of scripture from cover to cover. Very often as you work through the New Testament, you come across passages that really tie all of that together. Hebrews, we've been studying Hebrews is especially one of those books. But Galatians now for a few weeks is going to heavily be one of those books that ties in all of scripture together. Today is absolutely one of those passages where Paul's writing to the churches of Galatia. He's writing to the churches, to this people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. They heard the gospel proclaimed through Paul and accepted that message by faith. And through faith alone, believing in this gospel message, they were reconciled to God. They were made children of God, saved through the work of Jesus Christ. At the very beginning of their salvation, legalism didn't have any part in it. Their, their own merit played no role in them coming to Christ. And any sanctification they had experienced since that point of salvation did not involve legalism did not involve them earning God's favor by merit. Yet, their congregations had been infiltrated. Infiltrated by a group known as the Judaizers. This group that taught that faith in Jesus Christ was not sufficient for the Christian life. That the Christian life couldn't be obtained and lived simply by faith. They said that you had to add to it obedience to the commandments and the traditions of the Old Testament, that faith alone was not sufficient. And we've seen Paul's response to that. If you've been with us throughout Galatians, you've seen Paul's response is absolutely not. And his language throughout the letter we've seen is very emphatic. Paul doesn't equivocate on this. This isn't something that he's back and forth on or kind of even is soft with. He is very strong in condemning any attempt to add any amount of human merit to the work of Christ. Think even to his own talk of his own salvation 
in Philippians where he says, I put no confidence in the flesh. He, he talks about in Philippians chapter three, his credentials that from an earthly standpoint, somebody could be tempted to look at and say, hey, in a flesh, in a fleshly way, in, in a legalistic way, Paul had a lot that he could potentially put confidence in. And yet for himself, Paul said, absolutely not. I put no confidence in the flesh. I want a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. I think Galatians 2.21 really summarizes the strength in which Paul has condemned the influence of the Judaizers. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, that is, by obedience to the Old Testament law, human merit, then Christ died needlessly. Paul uses such clear, powerful language throughout Galatians in his condemnation of the Judaizers. And this letter is an important warning, an important lesson for all of us in the church today. While we might not have groups of Judaizers coming in and trying to convince you to adhere to elements of the Old Testament law, we probably don't have that, but we've got plenty of other influences, temptations towards legalism, towards human pride, towards trying to add human merit to what Jesus Christ has done in our life. This is a very real and present danger for the church because it impacts the work of the gospel. It, it, as we've seen in Galatians chapter 2, it causes division in the church and strife in the church because the true gospel cannot be a companion in fellowship with the false gospel. And if as a believer, you try to influence God's sanctifying work in your life and earn God's favor through your own merit, it's going to stunt your sanctification. Like we talked about last week, your sanctification does call for your absolute full effort, your full commitment to God, the Holy Spirit's work and influence in your life. But you give forth that full commitment in full reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. So Paul writes to strongly defend the gospel, and while we don't have Judaizers too often in our church, we do still have plenty of temptations. People who don't know the Lord in our midst, who are still tempted that perhaps there's some way that I should earn God's favor for salvation. And even for us, we are still tempted regularly to fall back into patterns of legalism and trying to add human merit to our sanctification. And so it, this letter to the Galatians could not be more important and more relevant for us today. And Paul strongly writes to defend the gospel. In chapters 1 and 2, he really called attention to the problem and called, was called to a defense of the gospel and to the truthfulness of the gospel preached, salvation through Christ alone. But having strongly come to the defense of the gospel in chapters 1 and 2, I love the transition that Paul makes in chapter 3. He starts to explain and teach 
that this isn't simply Paul's idea or just something that the Galatians should accept on his authority, but this has been the plan of God from eternity past. This has been what the word of God from eternity past has proclaimed to the people who would belong to God. That's the transition that happens in chapter 3. And in verses 1 through 5, he started this transition by first calling the Galatians back to what they already knew about the gospel. Back to the foundation of their own salvation. Back to the foundation of where they began. In verse 2, he asked them, how did they receive the Holy Spirit? And it was a rhetorical question. The answer, they received the Holy Spirit by faith. And to receive the Holy Spirit, we talked about last week, is to receive salvation. And this gift was received by hearing and believing the good news of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is the long-promised, long-awaited Messiah. He came to reconcile sinful mankind to God through the righteous life of Christ, being credited to our account, and we'll talk today about how that happens, about his death, paying the penalty for our sins, which through faith are credited to his account, and having been resurrected. That, as we'll see when we get to it in Hebrews, he lives today constantly making intercession before the Father for those who would believe in him. That's the gospel. And what Paul's reminding them in verse 2 is, that is how you received the Holy Spirit. Not by works of the law. And then he goes on, as we mentioned in verse 3, that it's not just that moment of salvation, but it's from that point into eternity, God's grace at work in the life of a believer that brings about sanctification. In verse 3, he said, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the answer is absolutely not. What he's doing in verses 1 to 5 is calling them back to what they know from their own experience. That from salvation to sanctification to glorification, human merit, legalism, doesn't play any role. It is all by grace through faith. So having brought them back to this central truth, Paul is now, like I said, flipping into teacher mode. This isn't just your experience, Galatians. This isn't just the gospel that I preached to you, but this is what the entirety of the Old Testament, God's word, points us to. He's going to now prove this truth of salvation by grace alone through faith. He's going to prove this from the most important source he can, God's word. There is no higher authority than God's very word. So that's where Paul turns. And there's a lot of irony here, because if you ask the Judaizers, What is your number one authority? What would they have said? The Old Testament. If you ask the Judaizers, is the Old Testament God's word? They would have emphatically said yes. So what's remarkable here 
And God's brilliance, not Paul's, but God's brilliance working through Paul is Paul takes them to the very scriptures that they claim to believe to say, look, based upon your own scriptures, it is through faith alone that a person is saved. And even more remarkable here, if you ask the Judaizer, who's, who are the champions of your faith? Like the Mount, who are you going to put on your Mount Rushmore Judaizers? You think Abraham would have been on that list? I'd say almost certainly, right? Almost certainly. Abraham would have been on that list. And so God is going to, or Paul is going to take us all the way back to Genesis to the very Old Testament scriptures that the Judaizers claimed to be such champions of, to one of the um, primary patriarchs, Abraham. And Paul is, Paul is going to prove from the word of God through the life of Abraham that Abraham himself was saved by faith and not by the works of the law. In verse 6, he begins with the words, even so. He's connecting here the experience of the Galatians in verses 1 to 5 of being saved by faith alone, he's connecting that to Abraham, Abraham's salvation. And and so he starts with the words, even so, just as you were saved by faith, even so in the same way Abraham was made right by God through faith. So we're going to focus on verses 6 to 9, but I want to go ahead and read 1 through 9 together since he's building upon that argument that begins in verse 1. So let's read together chapter 3 of Galatians, verses 1 through 9. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And of course, the rhetorical answer to all of that is by hearing with faith. Verse 6, even so... Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of the faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. We'll look at this in three different parts. Part one, what Abraham gained by faith. We'll look at the life of Abraham, his calling. What did Abraham gain by faith? Part two, what can we learn from Abraham? How does, what's the lesson? Paul makes it clear there that there's a lesson for us in the life and calling of Abraham. What is that lesson? In part three, that lesson, Abraham's call, what are the implications for us? The implications for us. We'll we'll start at the beginning. What Abraham gained by faith. Verse six, 
makes it very clear. Verse 6 says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Pretty clear. But who was Abraham? Who was Abraham? We're first introduced to him in Genesis chapter 11 as a descendant of Noah through Noah's son Shem. So if you follow chapter 11, it gives the genealogy from Noah down to Shem through Terah and finally Abraham. There's a lot of other links in that chain, but those are the, the most recognizable name. Abraham, one of the sons of Terah. And in chapter 12 of Genesis, you can go ahead and turn back there because we're going to read from a few different places here. Genesis chapter 12. But the beginning of chapter 12, the Lord chooses Abraham. Why did God choose Abraham? I don't know. <laughs> Why does he choose any of us? Because that's just what God does, right? You, you look through, and I didn't do an exhaustive study here. So if you think of an exception, like you don't have to confront me. I just thought through a little bit. Like, are there, uh, you think of Noah, like Noah does start off with not, and I'm not saying Noah merited God's choosing of him. I'm just saying that before you really get going with Noah in Genesis chapter 6, it does tell you Noah was a godly man, right? But for most of Scripture, you think of the people God calls, there's no obvious reason why God would choose this person. It is simply what God does. He chooses people and brings spiritual life into them, puts spiritual life into them, and uses them for his glory and his purposes. And it has nothing to do with the worthiness of the recipient. In fact, I would say pretty often it's the opposite almost, right? It's like God chooses people despite themselves. Think of Paul even. Like from a human standpoint, Paul is pretty far from the person you're going to choose to write 13 letters of the New Testament. But God that's why did God choose any of us? There's no answer within ourselves. There's no merit within ourselves. So why did God choose Abraham? I don't know, because he wanted to. But we come across his choosing here in chapter 12. In chapter 12 says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's pretty remarkable. It's a remarkable introduction to somebody you don't know anything else or hardly anything else about before you get to Genesis chapter 12. And there's a challenge built into these verses. In verse 2, he says, I will make you a great nation. In chapter 11, we're told that Abraham's wife, Sarah, is barren. 
barrenness in ancient Jewish culture would have been a tremendous burden to start with, but it's particularly a problem if you're going to become a great nation. There's, there's already this tension built into here, but God doubles down on that promise. In verse 7, God goes even further. He shows Abraham the land of Canaan, a land that is currently filled with people, right? This isn't like a vacant lot. It's one thing to see a vacant lot and be like, yeah, I could build there. But this is a land already filled with nations. And in verse 7 of chapter 12, the Lord appeared to Abraham, or it's Abram at this point, and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. His descendants, again, his wife is barren. His wife is barren. And this really comes to a head in chapter 15, if you want to go ahead and flip over there. Lots happens, lots of drama happens in 12, 13, and 14. God, if you think back even on your own life, God rarely takes us the direct route to anywhere. Have you noticed that? Um, God's always taking us on courses, paths that we probably wouldn't have chosen, um, writing stories into our lives that we wouldn't have written, but he always does it with his perfect love, wisdom, and ultimately for his great glory. The same thing happens with Abraham. But we get a reminder of this covenant in chapter 15, 1 to 6. And here's where, verse 6 is where we're going to get the, the verse Paul is quoting. In chapter 15, verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram saying, in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Think about that at that point. Abram, I'm sorry, I didn't write down. Abram's very old at this point, <laughs> and so is his wife, Sarah. They are well beyond your typical childbearing years. She's been barren her whole life, yet God is saying, not only are you going to have children, but I'm going to make a great nation out of you. In fact, look at the stars. Without all the DFW light pollution, I bet it was amazing. If you can look up at the stars towards the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them, so shall your descendants be. On a human level, this is pure craziness. It's impossible. There's no natural way that this could ever happen or be fulfilled. But what is the response of Abram, soon to become Abraham? Verse 6, this is the verse Paul quotes. Abraham believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
Now, I don't know if my grandfather translated this because he's the only person I've ever heard use reckon in a conversation. It's an accounting term. The count, credit. The ESV, I believe, says counted. Righteousness was credited to Abraham by faith. What is required for us to be in a right standing with God? Righteousness. Without righteousness, it is impossible to be reconciled to God. Our sin is the problem to start with. And the fact that even on our best day, the best of our actions from a human standpoint are tainted with sin. So as people, we have an insurmountable problem that Leviticus 19 too, God expands on this, says you are to be holy as I am holy. That's a standard that we cannot get close to. He didn't say you are to be holy as like Pastor Dusty is holy, you know, good guy, generally does good things. You are to be holy as John MacArthur. No, God said you are to be holy as I am holy. Think about it. If John MacArthur was the standard, you could try pretty hard and have a little bit of hope, right? But God, you are to be holy as God is holy? We've already missed the boat. I don't care what you do from this day forward. First of all, even then, you wouldn't be able to maintain the holiness of God for even a second. But as we sit here today, we've all already missed the mark. And Jesus reiterates this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes, and obviously the good news of the Messiah wasn't that he was going to lower the standard, because he reiterates it. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Again, the standard. He didn't point to some good person sitting out somewhere and say, hey, be perfect like they're pretty perfect. No, he pointed to absolute perfection, the Father. So if righteousness, this righteousness, perfect righteousness, is the requirement to be right with God, to avoid his eternal punishment, then we've got an insurmountable problem as human beings unless God's going to provide that righteousness through some other route. And that is the gospel, that Jesus Christ, being God himself, perfectly righteous, without an ounce speck of sin, came to live a perfect life and tells us that you put your faith in me, like Abraham, and by this faith, righteous, the righteousness of the Messiah is credited to your account. That's the beauty of the gospel. It was the gospel for Abraham as well, the foremost patriarch of the Jewish faith, the very one that the Judaizers would have been so quick to point to was himself 
made right with God, given the righteousness that was required through faith. And the scripture throughout expands that this blessing was not just on Abraham. The promises were not just for Abraham, but for the nations and the people that would, from, that would descend from him. But it's not the physical descendants. When it comes to God, God doesn't operate. I'm going to say it a different way. Take that back. When it comes to God, God is working at a spiritual level, the heart level, not according to the flesh. It's not the physical descendants of Abraham. As people were tempted to think according to the flesh, according to the material, but that's not how God operates. In fact, in the time of Jesus, people would cling to the fact that they were the physical descendants of Abraham and try to throw that at Christ. And Christ would say, hey, God could make physical descendants for Abraham from these stones over here. It is those who are of the faith of Abraham who inherit the blessing, inherit the blessing promised to his descendants. Back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, I'll tell you one thing. The challenge with this entire lesson, I don't know when to stop. Like, it's, we're going to flip to Hebrews 11. I, you could go as deep as you want to go on these things, right? And I think that's the big challenge. But I'll try to keep it simple. And go back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, that is the exact point that Paul drives at. God, in verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are faith who are the sons of Abraham. It is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So what is what did Abraham gain by faith? Righteousness. The very righteousness needed to be justified and right before God. That brings us to part two. What should we learn from Abraham? What did Paul want the Galatians to learn from Abraham? What should we learn from Abraham? Verse eight, the scriptures, scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Isn't that a beautiful way to talk about the Old Testament? The Old Testament is God's word is preaching to us. Even in the church today, the Old Testament is absolutely part of our faith, of the God-inspired, the God-breathed word to us that we should go to daily to learn from. In the life of Abraham, God was preaching to us justification by faith and not human merit. Think about even the circumstances of Abraham. How much law did Abraham have in Genesis chapter 15? I don't know. Like, that's a, I think that's an extraordinarily fascinating question. But he, 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 he definitely didn't have like a book called the Old Testament that he could go grab off the shelf and go read. I mean, absolutely, there's no question that God had revealed things to his people and shown himself to his people and brought people to faith in him 
and obviously demonstrated justification by faith alone. But what exactly did Abraham have in terms of the inspired word of God? That's a very difficult subject. But we know for sure he didn't have the Old Testament law as we have it today. The Judaizers, as they would have thought of Scripture and as they would have thought of the Old Testament law, Abraham absolutely did not have that, right? Even circumcision, the thing that the Judaizers were so quick to point to, circumcision? In Genesis 15, 6, Abraham is declared righteous many years before circumcision would come along. You don't even run into it until Genesis chapter 17, a few chapters later. Abraham was justified by faith. And as far back as Abraham, and you could make the argument, I mean, you should make the argument. You can definitely demonstrate all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis. But especially as Paul points out in the life of Abraham here, God was preaching to the world. Jews, Gentiles, first century believers in Galatia, us today in North Lake, God was preaching that mankind is justified by faith. He said, and he told them all the nations of the world would be blessed through you. One of the ways, obviously, that all the world is blessed through the descendants of Abraham is you go look at Matthew chapter one, you follow the lineage it goes right through Abraham to Jesus Christ. The Messiah of the world comes through the lineage of Abraham. So that's clearly one way that all the descendants of Abraham are blessed. But the other way that all the descendants of Abraham are blessed is through this gospel. The demonstration, proclamation, and proof of justification by faith alone. History is not an accident. Nothing happens by accident. God controls history. He acts in history to teach us about himself. We never have as clear and authoritative of revelation as we have in the spoken word. But God teaches us through history. And here we have recorded in the life of Abraham, both his act in history and the inspired recording of it, proclamation of the gospel, the same gospel by which we are saved today. But it wasn't just in Abraham. As we move on in Galatians, Paul's going to address numerous things about what the Old Testament means to us as believers today and how the Old Testament works in our lives today, what it teaches us. But one of the things I want you to clearly see this morning is that Throughout the Old Testament, it wasn't just Abraham. It's many men and women that are recorded for us throughout the scriptures of the Old Testament that demonstrate for us salvation, justification by faith. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Again, I couldn't figure out what to not read here. Um, but for time's sake, we definitely can't read it all. But look at what Hebrews chapter 11 shows us about the Old Testament saints. Because, you know, the Judaizers obviously were misrepresenting the Old Testament, saying that, hey, before Christ, it was about salvation through the law. 
the Judaizers obviously had that wrong, but I think many people in our day still have that incorrect thinking about the Old Testament times, that in the Old Testament, it was about justification through the law. And as we saw in Abraham, it's clearly not justification through the law. It's by faith. But look at how Hebrews does puts all this out for us. I'm just going to read. I'll start one to six, and then I'll hop a little and tell you where we're going. But verse one, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Do you see what verses 1 through 6 are doing? They're making it clear to us that from the very beginning, go as far back as you want in Scripture, it was by faith that we would be made right with God. Hop down to verse 8, because verses 8 to 16, I'll read them real quick. They're going to talk about Abraham specifically. Tie that in with what we've seen already this morning and what Paul's telling us. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out of a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even one, even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Hebrews here just driving home that through faith, Abraham was made right with God. And these promises, the promise of a blessing, the promise of inheritance, much more about anything on this earth was about his eternal security with God. 
And it's the exact same for us. Through faith, we no longer love the things of this world. Our hope is no longer fixed in this world, but on God's kingdom to come. We recognize that this world is falling apart, ravished with sin. The effects, the destruction of sin, we see it all around us. And our hope is in a future world, a new heaven, a new earth, and our place there is secured by faith. Lastly, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 to 40, he essentially in Hebrews just goes through a long list of Old Testament saints reinforcing for us again that the Judaizers would have had it wrong. Nobody in the Old Testament, as much as the Judaizers want to lift up human merit being attempted to be obtained through the Old Testament law, Hebrews 11 makes it as emphatic and clear as possible that none of these people were justified by their own merit. But it was by faith that they earned favor and eternal security with God. And he closes up verses, like summarizes in verses 39 and 40, all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. That eternal inheritance, but again, the key piece for us this morning having gained approval through their faith. As we look at the life of Abraham in the Old Testament, the lesson that Abraham's life in all of the Old Testament would have for us is it is salvation by faith alone. So lastly, what are the direct implications for us? We saw what Abraham obtained. We saw what we should learn from that. But very specifically, what is the implication? Verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. God's work in Abraham wasn't just about the Jews. It was about all the nations all the people. It was about salvation for the world. It it was about all of us here today. Abraham was justified by faith. What about you? What about us? How are we looking to be made right with God? Because the standard still hasn't changed. In Leviticus, the holiness of God was the standard. For Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he uses the word perfect. The perfection, the perfect righteousness of God was the standard. For us today, the standard remains the perfect holiness of God. Yet we still have the same problem. The same problem that each and every one of us is riddled with sin. Even on a good day, even on a good day, 
Sin is an ongoing problem. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? There's only two groups of people. Those who are, as Paul would put it here, the children of Abraham, the sons of Abraham, those who are of the faith of Abraham, and those who are not. There, there's, there's only two options for us. And the reflection that I would, or the thing I would call us all to reflect on is, for each one of us individually, what are we doing about our sin problem? Because the gospel couldn't be more clear that it is by faith alone in Jesus Christ that you can be saved. So if you're still attempting to earn God's favor through some other means, it's impossible. You will never reach the level of holiness and perfection that God demands. I would beg you, give up. Cast yourself on the mercy of God and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I recognize that Christ came to pay the penalty for my sins. Please forgive me for my sinfulness. Make me your child. That's all it takes. And it changes your life. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't stop there. It's not like, all right, now I can go do what I want. Because the Holy Spirit comes into your life and begins to change you. And you can't help but to grow in your love for God and obedience to him. It's the natural result of the Holy Spirit coming within you. And so for us as believers, continue to give yourself to that work. Maximum effort every day. People work so hard in this world for so many foolish things that will be gone in an instant. How much more should we work for the eternal glory, the eternal kingdom of God? Our lives should be given to it every day, yet once again in full reliance upon the grace of God, in full reliance upon the Spirit's work in our life, submitting to that work, remembering that from beginning, salvation, through sanctification to glorification, it is never about our own merit. It is never about what we bring to the table, but it's all about the work of God and his work in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do so many things. You make it so clear to us that it is all about your grace and your goodness working in our lives through faith. We thank you that you make it so clear to us. And we thank you that you love us enough to reveal to us your truth, to, to show us the futility of our own efforts. And I just pray, Lord, that day after day, you would help us to grow in appreciation of that, grow in our love for you, grow in just our worship of you, that every aspect of our lives would be given to your glory, lived out as a sacrifice to you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.